Gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank You for the joy of being together thus in Your presence. Thank You that as we sing, You spread before us from Your Word the vision of Your majesty and glory. You are surely high and lifted up, and not the train of Your robe, but Your very presence fills this sanctuary, which is constituted by Your people. Thank You that because by faith we can be in Jesus Christ, that You have called us to be a living temple made up of living stones, and that as You have taught us in Your Word, were all the earth to be silent, the stones would speak Your praise. We are such stones, and delight to be so. We pray as we have come to worship You, but also to hear Your Word, that You would come through Your Word and grant us audience into Your presence, a sense that we catch a glimpse of Your face. Speak to us, we pray, as though there were none other in this room, and yet as though You were speaking to all who are in it that we may be bound together in Your Word, in the grace of our Savior Jesus Christ. We come to You with anticipation, because You have promised that Your Word will never return to You void. And we pray that there may be no void this night in our hearts as we leave. For Jesus, our Savior's sake, amen. Please be seated. Now, we are engaged here in Sunday evenings in a series of studies in Paul's letter to the Romans. We've arrived at Romans chapter 5. Last Lord's Day evening, we looked at verse 1. This evening, we're going to look at verse 2. We are not going to take 11 sermons to go through the first half of Romans 5, but there are reasons to go slowly, at least at the beginning. But I do want to read chapter 5 and verses 1 through 11, that we may place this great verse in its even greater context. Therefore, says Paul, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, page 942, if you're using the Pew Bible, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Lady in one of my former congregations went relatively recently to be with the Lord in heaven. And as I was thinking about conversations I'd had with her in the past, I was reflecting on this great statement in Romans chapter 5 about the blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because I remember her telling me a story about her mother. Her mother had been a very ordinary young woman, had worked in a factory in Scotland, worked long and hard hours for relatively little remuneration. But at the factory gate there sat a man every Friday, payday, begging. And this lady every Friday had faithfully given the man actually rather a substantial amount of her weekly income to buy a pie in order that he might have something to eat. To her surprise, the beggar passed away, and it became known that unknown to him, he had actually been the heir of a million pounds. And he had lived most of his life at the factory gate as a beggar, utterly ignorant of the fact that there, there was a fortune beyond his wildest imagination to which he had total title if he had only known and if he had only taken it. I've actually often thought about that story because it so vividly to me illustrates the way I think confessedly most of us live our Christian lives. Many of us here are skilled in the doctrines of the gospel, but the New Testament teaching is not here to give us mere intellectual skill in the doctrines of the gospel. And indeed, our Lord Jesus Christ would tell us that understanding the doctrines of the gospel is not purely a cerebral or mental matter. It is a life-transforming matter. And though I had all the knowledge of the gospel in the world, it would still be possible for me to live the Christian life in terms of my enjoyment of God's grace, in terms of the transformation of my character, in terms of my Christ-likeness. It would be altogether possible for me to live as a virtual pauper. And so, when the Apostle Paul has brought us to this fundamental element of his exposition of the gospel, that in Jesus Christ sinners may be justified by God's grace through faith alone, it's almost as though at this point in his letter he is pressing the pause button and saying, now before we go on, before I tell you more about this, we need to stop and recognize the blessings that pour out upon us because of this overwhelming privilege of standing before God as those who have been justified in His 
sight. I think I have only one possession of my mother of any size or significance still in our own possession. It's a little chest, a little wooden box. And it was a box that my mother used to let me play with when I was a little child. Actually, I don't think we had many things to play with. I probably destroyed most of them on Christmas Day because uh, I was, to say the least, uh, rather a klutzy and probably uh, rather a destructive child. But on rainy days especially, sometimes I would say to my mother, can I play with the box? And as I opened up this box, I would, I would bring out what seemed to be the entire history and inheritance of my mother's family, medals from her brothers and from her parents and deeds and wills and death certificates. No wonder I grew up to be rather a gloomy individual, you think. <laughs> but I would pull these things out. They were, they were treasures. They were our family treasures. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 is doing exactly the same thing, and, and it's almost as though he's singing as he does it. As he says, do you understand? I won't try and imitate his singing, that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and that we have all these rich blessings of the gospel. Oh, dear Roman Christians, this is why I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it gloriously transforms life. And unless I am severely mistaken, that is what we need so to be filled, as Neil Matthias was reminding us, so to be filled with all that comes to us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, that gospel grace begins to overflow our very being. And it becomes clear that we really have tasted the grace of God in the gospel. And frequently in Paul's letters, his great concerns are expressed in terms of, don't you know these things? Or have you not grasped these things that fill you with a sense not only of grace, but as you see in this passage, with a sense of overwhelming glory? And all of it, as we've seen in our studies and we'll see more in our studies, all of it to be found in Jesus Christ, every treasure that God has to give you. He gives it to you in Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus Christ, He's saying, then all the riches and blessings of the gospel are already yours. Now, claim your inheritance and live out in the privileges of it. And here, as He comes to the second verse of Romans chapter 5, He's speaking to us about what this grace in Jesus Christ begins to accomplish in our lives. Look at His words. Through Him, that is, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there a plus 
in your life. We understand from the New Testament that justification comes by faith alone, by faith plus nothing. But justification doesn't come alone. That's what Paul is saying. Justification always brings with it a plus. And indeed, unless we have begun to grasp this plus that comes with justification, it might actually be doubted whether we have really grasped the justification of which the Apostle Paul is speaking in this great letter. And I want us this evening to look at three aspects of this that he speaks about just in this second verse. The pathway that saving grace takes in our lives, the reversals that saving grace effects in our lives, and then finally, the destiny to which saving grace leads in our lives. First of all, the pathway that saving grace takes in our lives. And you'll notice in this second verse, Paul seems to be walking us through a whole series of steps. They're not chronological steps. If anything, they're logical steps. But he can't say these things that are blessings of the gospel just by saying one word. It's as though he's spelling out to us what it is that grace begins to do in our lives when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Faith brings us to justification. Justification brings us to peace. Peace brings us to access. Access brings us to hope. Hope brings us to boasting or rejoicing or exulting. And that exaltation, ultimately, He will teach us in this passage, will lead us to eternal glory. And the point that He is making here at the beginning of Romans 5, and actually He is going to expand on at least to the end of Romans chapter 8, in these four great chapters of Romans 5 through 8, He is wanting us to see that despite the things that might seem to drag us down and to destroy our blessings, the believer who is justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ has an inbuilt guarantee in that justification of that future glory which the Lord Jesus Christ will bring him to. And the reason for that is this, and it's absolutely vital if we're going to understand the blessings of the gospel that we grasp this, that when Paul speaks about believers being justified by faith in Jesus Christ, he means that God's verdict on your life from the last day of history has been brought forward into the present day in your life, and therefore it is irreversible and it is absolutely indestructible. If justification were simply the verdict of the present day on the present condition of your life, 
then you could fall in and out of justification and fall in and out of salvation. But that's not what Paul means when he speaks about justification. And this is why he emphasizes that our justification is to be found not just in the life of Jesus or even just in the death of Jesus, but in the resurrection of Jesus. It's because the justification with which we are justified is the justification we find in the resurrection of Jesus that our justification is no more reversible than the resurrection of Jesus is reversible, and that our justification is no more destructible than the resurrection of Jesus is destructible. And this is the point he was making, isn't it? At the end of chapter 4, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. And my dear brothers and sisters, if that's true, that my present justification is God pronouncing on me long before the end of history, His final judgment from the end of history, because I'm united to His risen Son, then I understand why it is that nothing in the world, as he says towards the end of Romans chapter 8, no accusation of the devil, no charge that is brought against me can ever stand or stick, because I am shielded from condemnation in the person of His risen Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, that means that justification comes to the believer with a guarantee. And that's what you need. You need a justification that comes with a guarantee that says, those God justified, and you will recognize this from Romans chapter 8, those God justified, He also glorified those God justified, He also glorified. And that's why the Christian believer is able to enjoy so much glorious Christian assurance. And that's what he's saying here. I grasp this, and I begin to see, for example, that Christian assurance is not based, listen carefully, it's not based on Christian performance. Christian performance or lack of it can destroy assurance in my heart. If there is no evidence that I'm being saved, it's not going to be very long before I really doubt whether I am being saved. But it doesn't depend on performance. It depends on Jesus Christ. And so it comes as I believe in Jesus Christ, and the righteousness with which I'm justified is the righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself, triumphant over death and sin, having tasted the condemnation of the law for me. There is no possibility that God would reverse that verdict any more than He would push His Son out of His presence in heaven. I taste that 
I may, be the, I may be the newest believer in the room. I may be the poorest believer in the room. I may be the believer in this room with the littlest faith, but that littlest faith will get me the same Jesus Christ. And I may therefore be assured, as he says at the beginning of chapter 8, that there will be no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus. Now, let me say just a thing about this that will be of no interest whatsoever to some of you, but of interest, I imagine, to a few. This is why it's not possible. Now, follow me carefully. This is why it's not possible to be an orthodox Roman Catholic Christian and to enjoy the assurance of salvation. It isn't possible to be a Roman Catholic Christian and to enjoy the assurance of salvation. Now, I can give you chapter and verse for that from the decrees and canons of the Council of Trent, the sixth session, if you're really interested, that pronounces an anathema on anybody who believes that they can be confident that they will last to the end, unless, of course, you're one of the select few who have had a special divine revelation that has reassured you, you will be saved. Now, why is that the case for this reason? That the Roman Catholic teaching on justification says essentially this, you receive first justification in baptism. And what you have to do the rest of your life is, as it were, to ferment the grace that you have received in baptism until you are actually a righteous person. And when you have attained that status of being in yourself a righteous person, then God may truly say about you, this person is justified in my sight. Why do I say that? I say that because I've been dipping into the recent book of Mother Teresa's letters to her spiritual counselor. Some of you will have seen comments about it, I'm sure, in the media, and the astonishment of many in the media that Mother Teresa went through years of great darkness, years of great darkness, no assurance of God, no sense of His presence for years and years and years and years and years and years. Now, the interesting thing is that most people I've heard comment on this say, how could it be that such a good woman should know such spiritual darkness? Now, one of the things you'll notice is happening that people will begin to say, well, that's, that's actually very spiritual, that darkness. On the basis of what teaching about God the Heavenly Father is that darkness for years and years and years so spiritual? Is that what you want for your children? Do you want your little boy or little girl to live for 10, 15, 20, 30 years with no sense whatsoever that you love them, that you are near to them, that you care about them? I think that's the doctrine of demons. I think that's what Paul would call it. But you see, people say she was such a good woman. Ah, you see, that's the problem. God doesn't save anybody because they're good. God only saves sinners. He has never saved anybody else. Never 
ever, ever in the history of the universe has God saved a good person because of their goodness. He only saves sinners. And poor Mother Teresa lived in a church where nobody was able to help her. Apparently, nobody was able to help her and say to her, Dear Mother, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you just trust in the Lord Jesus and what He has done, there's nothing to be added to that. Nothing. He loves you. He gave His Son for you. You don't need to add anything to what the Lord Jesus did. All you need to do is trust Him, and He'll bring you into the light. That's why it's so important. I wish I'd had five minutes with Mother Teresa to say, Dear Mother Teresa, I know you are one of the most extraordinary women but I've come here to tell you that if you really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He clothes you with His perfect righteousness. You neither need to nor can you add to that righteousness. And here and now you may know that you are justified for all eternity in the sight of God. That's why it's so important. Now, there's another reason it's so important. Most Protestants believe the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, don't they? And sadly, many evangelical Christians quietly allow that teaching to slip into their way of thinking about the Christian life, and they lose their assurance. And the Apostle Paul is saying as he speaks about the pathway that saving grace takes that the justification of God of a sinner through faith in Jesus Christ guarantees the glory. Guarantees the glory. Now, the second thing I want you to notice he says here is this, that the justification of grace reverses the effects of sin. So, there's a pathway that saving grace takes and there's a reversal that saving grace effects. Now, there's something absolutely marvelous here for this reason. Paul has essentially been arguing in the earlier chapters three things. Number one, that as sinners by nature, we are excluded from the presence of God. Isn't that what Romans 1.18 to 3.20 is all about? There isn't a sinner who can stand in the presence of God. So, by nature, we are all excluded from the presence of God. Remember Psalm 130? Lord, if You marked my sins, I couldn't stand in Your presence. But now, he says, for those who are justified by faith, we not only have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but through Him we have also obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And he's using the word grace there almost as though it were a world, a cosmos, a universe. And this is what happens to the believer. The believer obtains an entry, an entree into the very presence of God, 
and into the grace in which we're able to stand before Him. Now, you notice we don't stand before Him in and of ourselves, but we stand before Him in this world of grace where everything, everything in our relationship with Him is grace, 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 and more grace. Now, you know, the truth of the matter is most of our hearts aren't able to take that kind of God. Isn't that true? I don't know about you. I don't think it's just being Scottish. I hate being in debt. My colleagues here know that. If, if they have to buy my lunch, I'm absolutely mortified. And I would rather give them, well, I'd be careful what I say, but I'd honestly rather give them twice what my lunch cost and them be in debt to me than me be in debt to them. But it can't be like that with grace. That's why grace is humbling and actually for most people totally terrifying. Totally terrifying. Because simultaneously it is absolutely free and simultaneously it kind of, in a positive way, suffocates me with the grace and kindness of the Heavenly Father. And Paul says, through Jesus Christ, we have access into this grace in which we now stand. It's the thing, of course, that happened at least in picture form in the book of Esther, isn't it? It's the, it's the turning point in the book of Esther when Esther gets her best clothes on at the encouragement of her uncle and, and uh, perfumes herself and, and just looks in the mirror, just gets the hair right and the makeup right and the, the nose ring, if she wore a nose ring, or the earrings right and the dress right. And then she stands, as it were, at the entrance to the king's court, and she's longing for entry into the presence of the king because she's got a request to make to the king. And you remember what happens? The king stretches out his golden scepter, and Esther goes, and she's able to touch the golden scepter. And the king says, my dear. Now, this is Old Testament teaching, remember, husbands, my dear. You can have everything up to half my kingdom. New Testament teaching is, my dear, you can have everything, period. <laughs> and that's what he's saying. You stand on the outskirts of the judgment palace of Almighty God, and the Lord Jesus comes, and He justifies you through His shed blood, and the doors open, and the King is there enthroned in His majesty and glory. And the Lord Jesus says to you, child, His golden scepter is stretched out towards you. Go and touch His golden scepter and stand there, and you will feel that you are in a world that's entirely surrounding you in grace and grace and grace. And that's a glorious reversal of what was true of me by nature. When I dare not go into this holy God's presence, when I have no entree before Him. But there's another reversal that Paul notices here. Not only do we have access into His presence, but one of the things he's been emphasizing in these earlier verses, we have absolutely no ground for boasting and exulting. 
He says, where is your boasting? He says, it is absolutely excluded before God. But now do you see what he says? It's a little masked by our English translations. We have access into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. Now, that's exactly the same word that he's used earlier on in Romans when he says, there is no one who can boast in the presence of God. Abraham, could Abraham boast before God? Certainly not before God. And here is the marvel of the gospel, that having had nothing to boast in before God, we stand in His presence, and we have something to boast in. What do we have to boast in? Well, we boast or rejoice, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And that's the third reversal. You remember how he had emphasized earlier on in in Romans chapter 1 that we have exchanged the truth about God for the lie, and we've exchanged the glory of God for the idolatry that we have towards the creation, and how he'd summed up his teaching in Romans 3.23 in this amazing statement that our greatest tragedy is that we have sinned and not only broken God's law, but we've fallen short of the glory of God. And now he says the very thing that we exult in, the very thing that we boast in, is the glory of God. And that this is what justification provides for us in Jesus Christ. Not only the certainty of our sins forgiven here and now, but the assurance of the glory that awaits us in and through Jesus Christ. And of course, when he says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He doesn't mean, well, I'm not very sure about it, but I hope so. He means, I'm absolutely sure of it, but I haven't yet fully experienced it. That's what hope means in the New Testament. Not wishful thinking, but a calm certainty of a reality into which I have not yet fully entered. And of course, he says, formerly, you remember in Ephesians 2, formerly we were without this hope, and now we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. You just need to go into an, a, an, a, an elderly person's house or, or perhaps to a care home for the elderly to see the glorious difference that true faith makes when there isn't much to look forward to. Without faith, there is only memory, but with faith, the best is yet to be, because these amazing reversals have taken place. I am somewhat bemused by the fact that there are two or three illustrations that my ministers in my earlier days used, that when they used them, I remember thinking to myself, that is just the worst illustration in the world. The thing that really irritates me is that I still remember them so clearly. (laughs) And I remember my very first minister quoting an ancient, I don't know that he knew that it was an ancient Celtic saint Brendan of Burr, 6th century Celtic saint. But my minister delighted to say that when this ancient Celtic saint, whom I now know to have been Brendan of Burr, 
when he was challenged by a pagan king. So, if we become Christians, what will we experience? That Brendan of Burr had said, remember the name you heard at first here, <laughs> Brendan of Burr said, well, I was only 14 or 15. How could I possibly have understood how gloriously true this was? Brendan of Burr said, sir, you will discover wonder upon wonder, and every wonder true. Now, isn't that the truth? Isn't that the gospel? So, we enter into it, these glorious reversals of our native condition that so marred and spoiled our lives, and the gospel begins this glorious divine reversal that fills us with such an amazing sense of the privileges that God has poured out upon us. Well, the third thing, the apostle speaks about the pathway that saving grace takes, the reversals that saving grace effects, and the destiny to which saving grace leads. Glory. And here again, as we've noticed before, you know, we need a huge chart somewhere on the wall to be able to trace with, with little uh, figures and diagrams and arrows the way in which Paul just, he just throws out a, a little nugget of the gospel, and, and then marvelous intellect he is. Don't try this if you're, if you're wanting to be a preacher. He just throws it out, and, and then several chapters later, he'll say, you remember that? And he'll bring it in, and he'll, he'll work it out in detail. Most of us can't do that kind of thing, but he could do that kind of thing. And he's going to do that kind of thing with this great privilege that is ours, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that justification by faith, both guarantees and leads us to heavenly glory. He'll say it later on in chapter 6, verse 23, that, you know, most of us know the first half of this verse and lose sight of the second half of the verse. The wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And he's going to say, of course, in Romans chapter 8, that God in His mercy through our sufferings is going to bring us to glory. And He's going to teach us that those God predestined, He also called, and those God called, He also justified, and those God justified, He also glorified. What does He mean by that, though? Well, the glory of God, at least in some senses in Scripture, seems to be, seems to be the almost physical illustration of the perfection of His character expressed in different ways, His Shekinah glory and that, that bright cloud that expressed His presence, that transformation that took place in the very being of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Paul is saying that's what He's destining you for, for glory. As our Lord prayed, Father, They've seen me in my humiliation. Father, I want them to see me in my glory. I want them to see me in my glory. 
to reach the glory, to see His glory. That will be glory. But not only that, to be transformed ourselves in, in, in a way that the Scriptures only hint at so that, so that in His presence our very beings will reflect the glorious character of God. Do you remember how Paul says this at the end of Philippians 3? He says, we're waiting for our Savior to come back from heaven and to transform these bodies of lowliness into the likeness of His body of glory. The bodies we have, says Paul in 1 Corinthians, they are placed in the dust because they're covered in weakness and in shame, but they will be raised in power and honor and in glory. What a thing. And yet Paul's not done when he says that we see the glory of God in this way. He wants us to understand that one day it will be clear what He has done in us. Oh, what a day that will be. You know, I think, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that the glory of one star differs from the glory of another star. The glory of one believer will differ from the glory of another believer. Heaven is not going to be a glorious place of boredom, and certainly the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells and reigns. That's not going to be a boring place where we're all simply like some science fiction picture, clones of each other. No, this is why Paul teaches us that suffering produces glory, because when we see one another in the glory, yes, we will recognize one another. Either that or they'll need a very long directory of identification numbers. But we will say to one another, I think about some of you who are sitting here tonight and what you go through in life that hardly anybody knows about. And perhaps you've shared just a tiny little with me. And He's going to transform that into glory when we meet one another. I think we're bound to say, we're bound to say two things. One, I never knew that this is who you really were. And the other, this is a Scotticism. You're awfully like yourself, you see. And this is Paul's great hope. It's, it's, it, it's, it's dominant in his thinking. That's why he lives such a relevant Christian life, because he has this overwhelming sense of where it's going to lead him. Some of you I know are C.S. Lewis enthusiasts, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my own opinion is that probably the least read of C.S. Lewis's relatively popular books, I'm not speaking about some of his works on English literature, but of his relatively popular books, I think probably the least read one is the one that I think he thought probably was the best, entitled Till We Have Faces, in which he reworks an old myth, a 
and in which one of the leading characters is this very striking line. Actually, those of you who are Lewis fans know that he wanted to call it bareface, and people thought that sounded like a criminal, and that's actually partly why he wanted to call it bareface, because he was trying to send a message. And in this mythological work, one of the leading characters has this line from which the title of the book actually comes, how can the gods meet us face to face until we have faces? Now, how are you going to have a face to meet God face to face? Well, listen to Paul. As we with unveiled faces behold the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's speaking about here and now, he says, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another, and this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's why, as I often say, to see an old faithful believer just glowing is not a figment of your imagination or a sign you're needing your eyes tested. It's the beginnings of glory here, in which God is saying in a kind of miniature transfiguration that they never see, I want you to, I want you to get just a little glimpse of who this person really is justified by faith in my Son, Jesus Christ, having entered into all the privileges of my grace. That's what puts glory into our lives here and now, because we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we behold Him in His Word. Now, isn't this true? Isn't this true? As we behold Him in His Word, in a teeny-weeny, itsy-bitsy, minuscule way, we begin to glow. Otherwise, why are so many of you glowing when you shake hands with me on a Lord's Day evening, when you've spent the whole day gazing upon the face of the Lord, and you go out glowing? Now, of course, you don't see it, but I see it. Paul is saying that's the inheritance of all those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we exult in it. We boast about it. We rejoice in it. Now, let me close with a couple of words because our time is gone. Is your spirit sluggish, my friend? Then this is, this is the fountain from which to drink. This is the fountain from which to drink. Is your witness impoverished? And yet you are able to boast in trivialities. Does it really matter whether the team won or lost by comparison with this? It's when this begins to grip us that it comes out of our mouths, you see. It is a great thing to be a Christian, to have this confidence, this assurance. makes us long that others will enjoy this confidence and this assurance. 
or, and this is my last word, can it possibly be that you've been going to church all your life, and you've heard great preachers or horrible preachers, great music or horrible music, been in great buildings or horrible buildings, but all your life long you've never, ever, ever, ever seen or tasted the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear one, there's nowhere else to find that glory than in the Lord Jesus. But if you come to Him, you just can't miss it, and you will enjoy it forevermore. Forevermore in the glory. That will be glory. Heavenly Father, thank You for the weight of Your glory, for the wonder of the gospel, for how good it tastes to us. And we pray that as we fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we may enter into the assurance that His justification brings to the weakest believer and anticipate the joy of that final glory. And this we pray together for His great name's sake. Amen.